Well, again, good morning. Happy Resurrection Sunday. We'll say it again. He is risen. It's a special day, the most significant day on our calendar where we especially remember the resurrection of our Lord and Savior. And here at this church, we seek to do that all the time, but it still is a special day that we have. Along those lines, just about every Easter and Christmas, I deviate from our normal course of events on Sunday morning to a special message highlighting some aspect of the birth or resurrection of Jesus. It's not quite what we have on the menu for today. If you weren't here last week, or if you're just visiting this morning, you might be a little surprised to read the sermon title in the bulletin and what the Bible says about demons, part two. It's not a typo. It really is what we're going to talk about. And this morning, we're going to continue on track with what we started last week, which is a study on demons. And you might be thinking, that's kind of strange for Easter Sunday. Are you sure you want to do this? Don't you want something you know nice and uplifting and, and more happy? Well, I understand what you're saying, but, but don't worry, because there actually is a very significant Easter tie-in. We'll see it, especially at the end of our message. But you have to remember that in the resurrection, Jesus, we sang it several times, he rose to victory. And just what was he rising to victory over? Well, over our sin, for sure. Over death itself, yes. But also over Satan and demons, as he rose victoriously, the, the seed finally crushed the serpent's head. This long struggle from long ago. And, and that victory in Easter time usually gets less attention by, by the end of our time today, since we're focusing on this, this spiritual warfare. We will be able to so much more appreciate and understand that aspect of his victory over a third foe of ours, not just sin, not just death, but a real spiritual enemy. And he's victorious over that. So in a way, this is an Easter message, and there will be a tie-in at the end. But we are sticking with what we started last week, what the Bible says about demons, part two. Didn't want to lose that momentum we built last week. But that being said, if you weren't here last time, I do want to reframe our discussion. Otherwise, you're going to be lost and confused. Why are we studying this? Well, the primary reason is Mark, the Gospel of Mark. Here on Sunday mornings, our normal course of events, we're going through the Gospel of Mark, verse by verse by verse. And when you start reading Mark, it doesn't take long. Just in the first chapter, you encounter demons. And they're possessing people, and they're wreaking havoc, and it's, it's kind of strange. You're wondering what's going on. And some of these stories are extreme, like in Mark chapter 5. We read about the Gerasene demoniac, this man possessed by thousands of demons until Jesus delivered him. Now, the problem with this is that Mark, he's writing his gospel assuming you know a thing or two about demons, and demon possession. But today, that's not always or even often the case. Our culture has subscribed to a ton of error and misinformation about the world of demons. Today, most people, they get their information about demons from movies like The Exorcist. And every year, there are more and more movies and media that just fill us with falsehood. And people buy into it. Just to prove my point, I I looked up the upcoming movies that are related to demons. And I found 16 in development. And here are some of the titles. They include Deliver Us from Evil, where an Irish Catholic cop works with a renegade priest to fight demons. There's Killing Demons, where a man loses his family by supernatural creatures as a child and devotes his life to hunting them down. And of course, this is, this is not a joke. 
Carpe Demon, Adventures of a Demon Hunting Soccer Mom, <laughs> where a suburban housewife is tasked with ridding her town of demons. Uh, presumably, that's a real movie. And you get my point. And even if you don't take these seriously, which I hope you don't, this media, it works its way into our culture's beliefs, and that works itself backwards into the church's beliefs. And so what do you know today? Even Christians find themselves misinformed and filled with error concerning demons. And this brings up the second reason we wanted to do this special little study. is that even Christians today are guilty of ignorance and error and malpractice when it comes to demons and demon possession. And what do you do about it? Some people claim demons don't even exist. Others claim they're very real and exorcism is needed. Some believe demons are everywhere. Some believe, believe demons are responsible for everything. And needless to say, there's a lot of confusion, and, and that's why we need a word of truth. How do we understand the world of demons? That's our big question that we're asking. And, and I'll tell you, to answer it, we're not going to go to Hollywood. We're not going to go to that person's experience. We're going to go to Scripture. I want to find out what God says about this very real struggle. And that's been our goal, to find out what the Bible says about demons in order to make sense of what we see going on in Christ's day and what we see going on today as well. And to accomplish this, last week we set out to present 20 Bible-based questions and answers about demons. It's pretty ambitious, 20 Bible-based questions and answers about demons. And it's a lot. It, it is a lot. It's an information-heavy message. I, I do know that. But we need it. It's like people's spiritual arteries are clogged with error. And you need a heavy dose of what the Bible actually says to flush it all out of your system and, and fill you with the truth. Anyway, last week we covered the first 13 of these questions and answers. And if you want all the details, just go to our website. You'll have to download that message from last week. But to bring it back up to speed, I will give you the, the five-minute version, the five-minute recap from what we concluded and found from Scripture last week. Briefly, the Bible presents demons as being very real. What are they? Well, they're angels. Demons are angels. They're fallen angels. Angels who fell along with Satan at his first initial rebellion. But demons, they're not all-powerful. They're not all-knowing. They're not everywhere present. Compared to man, though, they are vastly superior They've observed mankind since the beginning. They know us well. Their mission is to take mankind down. That's how they can oppose God, by opposing us. And they do this by opposing the truth. And deception is the name of their game. That's why they're pleased to keep people occupied with false religion and idolatry and distraction, so long as they stay away from the truth. Now, regarding true believers, if you truly are saved, what can demons do to you? Well, we found they can tempt you, they can test you, they can persecute you. These are all external afflictions that can be resisted. But we were very clear, and we found very clearly that demons absolutely cannot steal your salvation. They cannot rob you of your faith in Christ. And very clearly, they cannot control you. They cannot possess you. This brought us to the very important concept of demon possession, but you start reading Mark, I mean, there it is. It's in the first chapter. It's all over. Demon possession. 
And regarding the unregenerate, demons can possess them. So that led to the question, well, what, what is that? What does that mean? What is demon possession? Biblically, demon possession refers to a demon indwelling a person and exercising control and dominion over that person, which cannot be resisted. The demon is indwelling, they're in control, and they're irresistible. That's possession. And those who were demonized often displayed physical deformities. And, and understand, not all sickness is due to demons. Not, not at all. But that said, when a demon did possess a person, it, it did come with its own version of sickness. Also, the demonized displayed supernatural powers, abilities, supernatural knowledge, and a supernatural personality. And that's the real kicker. When someone was demon-possessed, they weren't just sick or they weren't just crazy like they had schizophrenia. No, it was something much more. There's another person, a distinct personality in control of that person, enslaving that person, and that's why deliverance was needed. And this brings us to Jesus. And frequently, he delivered people from demons, and he did so how? Just, he cast them out. With a word, with complete authority, he spoke, he commanded, they had to leave. They had to leave the person and, and give up their control. Jesus gave this same authority to his apostles and a few others so that they too might deliver people. Now at this point we encountered a really significant question. It made us wonder, well, do believers today have this same authority over demons? I mean, we see Jesus and the apostles, they're casting out demons with authority. So has God given us today that same authority? And the very clear answer we found from Scripture was, no. No, you don't. We spent a lot of time on this. We're going to say more today. But the ability to cast out demons was, was tied to the sign gift of healing. And God gave these sign gifts to the apostles and prophets in order to demonstrate their authority and to authenticate them as messengers from God. But when the apostles passed away, so did their gifts, their sign gifts. And the church's authority came to rest on what? On Scripture. God planned on Scripture being His lasting word of authority for the whole world, not signs and wonders. And just as today, no one is no one's really healing like Jesus did. The blind are not seeing. The deaf are not hearing again, that the crippled are not walking, the dead are not being raised. At the same time, no one is casting out demons like Jesus did. And don't get me wrong, God still heals, God still has power, but individuals with this authority is no more. The special authority and ability is not intended for us. Now this is where we left off last time, and clearly by no means were we finished. There's still a lot of questions. I mean, if this is true, well, okay, well, what do we make of what we see going on around us today? Because, you know, there's a lot of people who claim to be exorcists, that they can cast out demons, and they've got these really vivid experiences that they claim they're real. So what do we make of these people? I mean, are they telling the truth? Are they lying? Are they deceived? What's the deal? Is demon possession even still a real thing? And if it is, what are we supposed to do about it? I mean, if you're saying we can't do what Jesus did anymore, then 
then what do we do? Are we just left helpless and defenseless? So our job is not done. We still have more questions. Last time our focus was on understanding demons and demon possession in the days of Jesus. And we want to pick up where we left off. Only this time our focus will be more on understanding demons and demon possession today. Today's questions aim to help us make biblical sense of, of all we see going around, around us in the world today. And speaking of which, let me ask you this. If you were to encounter today a person you thought to be demon-possessed, what would you do? What, what would you do? Or at the least, what needs to be done? You would probably say the answer you'd get from most people is, well, perform an exorcism. So let's ask that question. If you're keeping track from last week, this is technically question 14. But the question is, what is an exorcism? Let's start with that. What is an exorcism? It could be a simple definition. An exorcism is a special ceremony used to drive demons out of a person. That's it. It's a special ceremony used to drive demons out of a person. And the ceremony can differ, but it often involves special rituals, or formulas, incantations, artifacts, all used to compel the demon to leave. Now, the Catholic version comes with its own, you know, what to bring list. You need a Bible, a rosary, some holy water, a crucifix, and a medal of the Virgin Mary. And this is official ceremony, the Roman rite of exorcism. The priest is to have this long battle where he adjures the demon to leave, he lays his hand on the person. He reads various scripts over them. He signs the cross over them three times. He sprinkles them with holy water. He holds a crucifix to their forehead, compelling the demon to leave. All the while, the priest is instructed to pay special attention to any words that cause the demon to tremble and use those more often. He is to persist in this manner for as long as it takes, days even. The Protestant version of exorcism isn't that different. I mean, yeah, they drop the holy water and the rosary and the Virgin Mary stuff and the crucifix, but they keep the cross and the big Bible. And it's the same drawn-out process of, of yelling at the demon to come out of the person for some long period of time, this verbal sparring match, for as long as it takes, all in the name of Jesus. However, some Christians perform even more extreme exorcism rituals. Bob Larson, he's an infamous supposedly Christian exorcist. He has an online test, 21 questions, to find out if you're demon-possessed. Just go to his website, take the test, you'll find out if it's you. And if so, he encourages you to buy his DVDs or to visit his compound where he can deliver you. And there he will seek to determine which satanic curse led to your possession. And the exorcist must find out the exact wording of this curse and then formulate a renunciation to break it. It takes a spiritual lawyer to do this, and so by conducting a, an almost inquisition on the demon, he can deliver you. For a small fee, but he can deliver you. Larson does believe in using the Bible to perform exorcisms, only not in the way you might think. Since the Bible is referred to as a sword of the Spirit, he wields it like an actual sword, using it to deal lethal paper cuts to the enemy. Not joking. 
Also, since the Bible is likened to a lamp, he holds it over a person and, and tries to raise their body temperature with the Bible to drive the demon out through discomfort. Sometimes these modern exorcisms don't go as planned. In 2001, a Korean minister performed an exorcism on a woman in, North, in, a, in New Zealand by bouncing on her chest to expel the demon. When that didn't work, he started to strangle her, and she died. And her body was left for six days because he promised the people that she was going to be resurrected and that Satan killed her. Well, that didn't happen, and someone finally called the cops. And when he was arrested... Big surprise. They found out he had left South Korea for pretty much the same thing. Thankfully, he was arrested this time. But you you get the drift, though, in general. Whether it's these extreme bizarre cases or just the, the Catholic version or the verbal sparring match, an exorcism is some some ceremony, some ritual, some process of compelling the demon to leave. So that's that's exorcism. Which leads to our next question, number 15. Is exorcism biblical? Is exorcism biblical? And the answer is very clear. Not at all. Not at all. Let me be very clear here. Jesus and the apostles did not perform a single exorcism. Not one. Jesus was not an exorcist. Now you're, you're thinking, wait, I thought Jesus cast demons out all the time. Well, yeah, he did. But do you understand the difference between what he did and what is done now under the, the title of exorcism? Because there is a world of difference. Not once did Jesus and the apostles do anything comparable to this ritual that's done today. How did Jesus and the apostles deliver people? It was with a word. They commanded the demon to left, and, and it left. That's it. It's over. The deliverance was instant. It was total. There was no battle, no struggle, no ceremony, no ritual, no incantation, no artifact. It was just a word of authority. And you have to understand how vastly different that is from what we see going on today. Nobody's doing that. You might wonder, you know, why didn't Jesus and the apostles use a ritual or do a little ceremony to cast out demons? And the answer is they didn't have to. Well, why not? Because they had complete authority. Jesus, being God, has complete authority over all creation. And that includes demons. So when he commands, they have to leave. And he delegated that authority to his apostles. That's all they needed. In Mark chapter 6, verse 7, we'll get to it shortly. It says, Jesus summoned the twelve and began to send them out in pairs and he gave them authority over the unclean spirits. That's all they needed. They had no ability on their own, but this was a special gifting for a special purpose. Healing and casting out demons were, were signs given to authenticate their messages coming from God. Now speaking of healing, how did Jesus and the apostles heal people? The same way, just with a word, with a word of authority. It's almost as if they had this authority over sickness, and they did. You're blind? Not anymore. You're deaf? Not anymore. You're, you're paralyzed? Get up and walk. That's all they did. 
It was instant, total, complete healing by command. And people today claim to be healing like Jesus. God still heals, not through apostles and prophets anymore. He still heals. But people today claim this power for themselves. But no one's healing like Jesus did. And in the same way, no one is casting out demons like Jesus and the apostles did. Because that special authority is not given anymore. If you remember Mark chapter 1, the first encounter, this man possessed, Jesus just commands him to leave. The demon's gone. People were amazed. There's no exorcism, no ritual, just authority and complete deliverance. And if you remember that passage from Mark 1, the people were amazed. They were amazed. We've never seen anything like this before. The Jewish people at the time of Jesus, they believed that demons were real, demon possession was real, and they believed that exorcism was the answer. You heard me right. The Jews, they had Jewish exorcists before and during the time of Christ. Now, the modern idea of exorcism is actually not modern. It goes way back, back to the ancient world. This whole idea that through this ceremony or this ritual or saying this, this phrase or an incantation, you can compel these demons to leave, that's actually not new. That goes way back. And some Jews, they claimed to be exorcists, but when the people, they saw Jesus, they saw what he actually did, and it worked, just a word of authority, even they recognized, well, that's different from what our Jewish exorcists are doing. There's something clearly different here. He's not like them, and he's not. Now, I should say that the word exorcism itself does come from the Bible. It's derived from the Greek word exorcistes, but that word is never used of Jesus and the apostles. In fact, it's only used once. And it's in reference to a group of false Jewish exorcists, which we will see shortly. The writers of Scripture were very careful to not apply this word to Jesus and the apostles because they weren't exorcists. They were doing something different entirely. So where did this notion of exorcism come from? Well, part of it is just pagan. It goes way back to pagan religions, the ancient world. Exorcism was a pagan practice that crept its way into Jewish and Christian circles. So a lot of it is just pagan roots. The other half comes from Christians who they try and Christianize this pagan practice of, of pagan practice of ritual exorcism. They try and Christianize it through a mishandling of scripture. And let me show you. For example, turn to Acts 19. We have a couple of passages here in Acts 19. So just turn there. Acts chapter 19. We'll start at verses 11 and 12. This is Paul in Ephesus, which was a demon-infested town. We'll see more of that, but Ephesus was bad. The temple of Artemis, a lot of idolatry going on there. But at the same time, God did a lot of work there. You know that the, the book of Ephesians, it became a, a strong church for a time there. Anyway, Paul is ministering in Ephesus and just start at verse 11. Just look at a couple verses. Acts chapter 19, verse 11. God was performing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul so that handkerchiefs or aprons were even carried from his body to the sick and the diseases left them and the evil spirits went out. Now talk about strange. These demons were, were cast out just by contact with a garment of Paul. And this is real. This, is, this happened. And what do we make of this? Well, it's an amazing sign that God enabled. 
And why did God do this? Well, to establish the apostolic authority of Paul in Ephesus, a key city. But is this for you? I mean, should we be able to do this? Take off my jacket, give it to you, demon cast out? Does it work like that for us? You see, any command here, any instruction, any prescription? No. This is merely describing something truly amazing that God did through Paul. But if you take descriptive texts like this and you make them prescriptive, you're going to run into some trouble. This is a very simple but major distinction that you have to make. And if you miss this, you'll get things wrong. The distinction between texts that describe things and then texts that prescribe things. And there's a difference. And this is what's happened today with so-called Christian exorcism. They take descriptive passages and make them prescriptive as if this is for us. I mean, listen, how many prescriptions are there in all of Scripture for you to cast out demons? How many prescriptions? Zero. There's not a single prescription or command or instruction in the entire Bible for you to cast out demons. Let alone exorcism, the whole ritual side, that's not even mentioned. But the prescription is not for you. None. Demon possession is only mentioned in four books of the Bible. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and Acts. John actually doesn't mention demon possession. So four books of the Bible, and even at that, there are zero instructions, commands, or prescriptions for us to do what Jesus did concerning casting out demons. Now, he did it. The apostles did it. But there's not a command for us anywhere. At the same time, on the flip side, you get to the epistles where demon possession isn't mentioned once. In those epistles, instructions for the church, they're loaded with instruction on spiritual warfare. That's real. There is a spiritual warfare to wage, and we will talk about that. But never is us casting out demons mentioned. I hope you get the drift. This is not for us, not what you're supposed to be doing. Do you see people walking on water? But Jesus did it. But it's not for you. Or like Acts chapter 1. You look at the apostles and they were going to replace Judas with a new number 12. How did they do that? They drew straws. That's, that's what it says. They, they basically drew straws between two qualified men. So is that how we should choose elders? Because that's what they did. Well, no. That's a descriptive text. And we are prescribed something altogether different in the New Testament. And it's the exact same thing with spiritual warfare. Exorcists today have these very detailed ceremonies and procedures about how to cast out a demon. You, act, you ask them, like, where'd you get this? I mean, it sounds so detailed. Well, it's not from the Bible. They're either made up, or they come from pagan roots, or they're wrongly extracted from descriptive Bible passages. Now, since we're on topic, and since you're already in Acts 19, let's talk about the name of Jesus. Because this is another perfect example. Today, the name of Jesus is used like a magical charm. As if the name itself has power over demons. It's like nails on a chalkboard to them. They just can't stand it. Well, that's what a group of Jewish exorcists thought. And it didn't work out so well. Here in Acts 19, let's keep reading. Look at verse 13. Right after this it says, But also some of the Jewish exorcists, there's that word by the way, the only mention, who went from place to place, attempted to name over those who had the evil spirits the name of the Lord Jesus, saying, I adjure you by Jesus whom Paul preaches. 
Seven sons of one Siva, a Jewish chief priest, were doing this. And the evil spirit answered and said to them, I recognize Jesus, and I know about Paul, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them and subdued all of them and overpowered them so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. Didn't turn out so well for these Jewish exorcists. They thought they could wield the name of Jesus like a magic charm and it. it didn't really work out. Demon's like, I know Jesus, but who are you? Where's your authority? Listen, demons already know the name of Jesus. They're not surprised. They're not allergic to it. In the Gospels, they're the ones running up to Jesus, bowing down and confessing his true name long before all the other people do. You are the Holy One of God. There's nothing magical about his name. And you're saying it in English at that. His name's not in English. Now you ask, what about Acts 16, verse 18? And just, just humor me. Turn there. Turn back to Acts chapter 16, verse 18. Paul again, with a demon-possessed girl. And notice how Paul cast this demon out. Chapter 16, verse 18. Paul with this girl in the middle of the verse. Paul was greatly annoyed and turned and said to the Spirit, I command you, in the name of Jesus Christ, to come out of her. And it came out at that very moment. First off, another example of that instantaneous deliverance. But, but look, he used the name. I mean, he used the name of Jesus. So that, we should do that too, right? Just command in the name of Jesus and they have to come out. But what does it really mean for Paul to invoke the name of Jesus? It's, it's not a magic charm. The issue is authority. It all goes back to the issue of authority. The name of Jesus connotes the authority of Jesus. And Paul was declaring the authority he had with which to cast out the demon. This was an example not of Paul's authority, but of Christ's authority. And as we established last week, you don't have that special apostolic authority over demons any more than you have that same authority over nature or sickness or death. Can you still a storm? No. Can you cure blindness? No. And why not? Because you don't have authority over those things. Jesus did, gave it to the apostles, but not you. The ability to work signs and wonders had a clear purpose to authenticate the apostles as men speaking from God, thereby establishing the authority of what would come to be known as the New Testament. And the New Testament is complete, and sign gifts are not needed and not given. God still works miracles. All the time God works wonders, but not through men with sign gifts. All in all, the practice of exorcism today is completely unbiblical. Christians today cannot do what Jesus did. And what passes for exorcism today is no substitute. It's no alternative. It's an unbiblical practice, and you should avoid it. Have nothing to do with it. Now we're still wondering, okay, if that's true, what about these people who, who have seen or experienced successful exorcisms? And that's our next question, number 16. If you're still keeping track, what do we make of people who have seen or experienced successful exorcisms? Now we get to this issue of experience. So many are driven by experience. They evaluate the truth by experience. 
I mean, a lot of people today, with, with all their heart, they believe exorcism is real and it works because they saw it. There was this person and they were, they were crazy. They were clearly demon-possessed. And this pastor, he kind of battled them verbally for like 20 minutes and he, he told them to come out in the name of Jesus and then the person fell over. They looked like they were dead. Then they rose and they were at perfect peace and they were confessing Jesus and it was real. I saw it happen. And have these vivid experiences. What, what do we make of those? Well, now turn to Matthew chapter 7. Let me bring a few passages to bear on, on this issue of experience and authority. Matthew chapter 7. And I have a rule of thumb. When people tell me some miraculous experience they had, I don't immediately doubt it. I don't doubt their experience. Who am I to say that they did or did not have that experience? I, I wasn't there. Maybe they did have an experience. But my job is to help them evaluate their experience according to Scripture. Because experiences can be deceiving. There's an old guy named Joseph Smith. He had experience, the founder of Mormonism. Look where that experience led him. And here in Matthew 7, we see some people who had these amazing experiences. Some amazing experiences. And the context here, Jesus is warning against false prophets, by the way, those who deceive And look what he says in verse 21. Matthew 7, I think most of you know this. He says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Now stop there. It's a critical lesson, critical, that a fruitless faith is no faith. A fruitless faith is no faith at all. Like he just said, you will know them by their fruits. Anybody can claim to be, to be a Christian or to call Jesus Lord even, but, but these people were never truly born again. That doesn't mean they weren't outwardly religious. No, these were very religious people. Look at verse 22. He continues, he says, Many, not, not a few, many will say to me on that day, the day of judgment, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons, and in your name perform many miracles. And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Now what's going on here? Why are these people being rejected from heaven? I mean, they call Jesus Lord. Isn't isn't that it? That's all you have to do? I mean, but talk is cheap. These people had religion, not relationship. They had outward performance, not inward change. They had experience-driven sensationalism, not true godliness. And isn't this telling? These people appeal to Jesus. They claim they know him based on what? On their works, on their miraculous works, which they even did in his name. I mean, hey, hey, Jesus, but we cast out demons in your name, in your name. I mean, what, what gives? Why are we being rejected? Notice this. These three works they appeal to, none of them are commanded by God. God never commanded us to do any of those things. Some people did them, the apostles, but they're not commanded. This is not the measure of godliness. This is not what God considers true fruit. In reality, these people's lives were characterized by what? Verse 23, lawlessness. They were lawless. They may have called Jesus Lord with their mouth, but they denied him with their lives. 
You are saved by faith apart from works. That is crystal clear. You're saved by your faith in Christ apart from works. But theirs was a false faith evidenced by the fact that it produced no righteousness at all. Now, there are many lessons from this passage. Don't miss the main point. The main point, you must know and follow the true Jesus by faith. And that faith will bear fruit. The evidence of of true salvation being born again is fruit. Fruit doesn't save you, but that shows you you have a a saving faith. But you also notice this. I'm sure you, you didn't miss it. That here's this group of people, and it's many, and they end up in hell. But at the same time, they claim to do what? To cast out demons. At some point in their lives, they had this experience of casting out demons in the name of Jesus. And presumably it worked because they regarded themselves as successful. I mean, just think about that. They apparently cast out demons. Jesus never denied that. But he also didn't accept their works and they still went to hell. So what is going on? Like, How do you make sense of that? And were their abilities real? Did they really cast out demons? We know for a fact they weren't born again. So you're telling me it's possible for unbelievers to cast out demons for real if they just use the name of Jesus. We already saw what happened to those Jewish exorcists who tried that. So, so what's going on? Well, hold the thought and turn to Matthew 12. One more, Matthew 12. Matthew 12 is a central passage for demonology, you know, the study of demons, because here we learn from Jesus himself. This chapter, you may know, Jesus cast out a demon from a man. The crowd is amazed. The Pharisees, though, claim that Jesus is working by the power of Satan. They don't deny his power. They just say it's satanic. Jesus rebukes them. He responds, Satan cannot cast out Satan. Rather, he casts out demons by the Spirit of God. He goes on to teach about the unforgivable sin. Remember that? Jesus then condemns them, verse 39, because they are an evil and adulterous generation. And then we get to the end of the chapter. Look at verse 43. He says this, right after that, he says this. Now when the unclean spirit goes out of a man, it passes through waterless places seeking rest and does not find it. Then it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds it unoccupied, swept, and put in order. Then it goes and takes along with it seven other spirits, more wicked than itself. And they go in and live there. And the last day of that man becomes worse than the first. This is the way it will also be with this evil generation. Now understand what Jesus is doing here. He, in the context, he is pronouncing judgment on them. And to do this, he's using a true illustration from the world of demons. He says this generation is like a demon-possessed person. And that demon goes out. It leaves on its own. But then it decides to come back. And when it does, it finds the person, what? Empty. And since it's empty, it comes back, moves back in with seven more spirits. And the last day is worse than the first. So it will be with this generation. So what's the lesson? The lesson is that this generation, he's condemning them, Because they tried to cleanse themselves through this outward moral reform and religion, but they didn't have Christ in them. They were empty of God's Spirit. He didn't fill their hearts. 
Therefore, they didn't really change. And through their supposed reform, they actually only became more wicked. And so it is with this evil generation. The lesson, once again, is you must be born again from the inside. That being said, Jesus still himself teaches us here a thing or two about demons and possession. And what do we learn? First, we learn demons desire indwelling. They're roaming. They're restless. They're seeking habitation. To them, possessing a human is better than not. That's interesting. Second, we learn it's not easy. He says, seeking rest, they find none. It, it apparently is not a necessarily easy task for them to find someone to possess. Maybe that's why they all cram into the same person. But then third, we learn that when demons do possess a person, they may of their own will leave that person and go out and then come back in at some later point. If that person is still empty, if they're still not saved, if they're still devoid of God's spirit, even more can infest and the last state becomes worse than the first. Now that's very interesting though. Why would a demon ever leave a person if that's the better place? I mean, we've already established Satan doesn't cast out Satan. Their whole mission is to take mankind down. So why would they ever leave a person if their whole goal is to, to possess and torment mankind? Could it be to deceive? Could it be to lead people into believing that they have this power over demons so that they buy into this whole unbiblical system of exorcism? Could it be to distract people from sin and repentance and the gospel and salvation? All the things which actually can save and deliver a person. Could it be to convince people that you must be right with God because you can cast out demons. Look at your power. You must know God. Lord, I thought we knew you. We even cast out demons in your name. You think about that. Who deceived those people? Who told them that? Who led them to believe that? And do you get it now? It was the demons. The demons deceived those people. Those people had real experiences. Oh, they did. But that doesn't mean they were from God. Demons want you using the name of Jesus like a magical charm. They want you buying into formulas and rituals and incantations and magical sayings, artifacts and relics. Why? Because in reality, those things are powerless to do any real change and they distract you from the real power. And what is the power of God for salvation? Romans 1.16, the gospel is God's real power. And they want to keep you away from that. Demons are very happy to have people subscribe to religion, avoiding the true gospel. And that's what's happening. You look at those guys on TV who do the exorcism shows and the gospel is not preached. The gospel is not emphasized. Sin is not the problem. Demons are the problem. The gospel is not the answer. Exorcism is the answer. It's just another religion. And your experience does not prove otherwise. Your experience does not prove that what you do and what you see comes from God. You know, maybe you did see something supernatural. Maybe you did. But how do you know it came from God? Prove that it came from God. Well, because you used the name of Jesus? Well, so did those people. 
Because it seemed to work, the person was delivered, well, demons can leave on their own when they want to. So prove that it came from God. And the question we're asking is here, what do, you, what do we make of modern experiences of seemingly successful exorcisms? And the answer we find putting this together is this, two answers. Number one, false diagnosis. Exorcists today see a demon under every rock, when in reality most times there's nothing there. This whole idea of designer demons, a demon of lust. You don't need a demon of lust. You have your own sinful flesh to take care of that. So most of the time, it's just a false diagnosis. But secondly, you know, demon possession, it's, it's very real. Don't get me wrong. It, it still is real. And it, it's quite possible that a demon-possessed person has gone into one of these exorcism revivals and encountered a modern-day exorcist and that they were really delivered. The demon left the person. Totally possible. But how do you know that deliverance came from God? And leads to the second answer. The demon left willingly in order to deceive. The demon left willingly in order to deceive. Exorcism is not a biblical practice. Not not in the Bible. We've established that. And the people who practice exorcism today, they don't have any real power over demons. They may think they do because they have experience, but they don't have a real power. But they have these amazing stories. And are they true? Maybe. Maybe they are. But if they are, their exorcisms are in reality a voluntary departure of the demon. And this is huge. And this is why you can't use experience to determine reality. Remember, the whole MO of demons is deception. How do you know when the devil is lying? When his lips are moving. Right? I mean, how crazy is this? Again, that, that exorcist Bob Larson, he claims that to cast out demons... You have to first interrogate them for specific curse information that only they, they know and use it against them. But wait a second. You have to interrogate a demon for information that only they know and you're going to take their word for it? You're going to believe them? I mean, their master is the father of lies. You get, you get this, right? This is crazy. It's like a protection racket. You know, pretend you're like back in the 1920s in Chicago. You're in a little market, corner market, and one day a group of guys come in, some thugs, and they rough you up, they rough the place up, they say they'll be back. The next day, another group of guys come in, and they say, hey, we'll protect you from those guys. You just, just pay us every month, we'll protect you. And so you pay them. Like, I'm, I'm delivered. In reality, both groups came from the mob. Both groups came from the same, they're working together. It's all a show. It leads you to believe you needed deliverance. And you thought the second group of guys was your savior, but they were in on it. It was all just a show. And that's what happens today. Satan owns and operates both ends of the modern exorcism racket. And most of what we see today is a bunch of, sadly, according to Matthew 7, unsaved people performing powerless rituals on another bunch of unsaved people. And we don't say it with joy. We, we want them to know the gospel. But I don't want you to be deceived. You have to see the brilliant demonic strategy behind this. Satan and demons have been at this for millennia. You're not going to outsmart them. You're not going to trick them. And people today, they're so desperate for the miraculous. And that's why they miss the gospel. That's the real miracle. You don't Look no further than new birth for your miracle. 
scripture is clear. Satan and demons are capable of lying signs and wonders, and they will use them. And the numbers will only increase as the day draws near. But don't be deceived. Galatians 1. Remember what Paul said? Even if an angel, even if an angel should preach to you another gospel, he is damned. That's what he said. He is accursed. Anathema. You must use the truth of God's word to evaluate your experiences. Because the word doesn't deceive, but your experiences just might. And what you see going on today under the label of exorcism, it's not legitimate. It's not from God. And don't take my word for it. Study the Bible yourself. But this is the rock on, on which we stand. I'm going to say this, let your hope be in the gospel. If you haven't guessed it, you know we do have to do a, a part three next week to finish this little study on demons. I know, it happens, I, I wanted to make it a two-parter, but you dive into scripture, there's just too much there, and like I'm not going to rush it to kill it. So we'll just finish next week, not a big deal. Last time we looked at demons and possession in the days of Christ. Today we spent necessary time really answering and refuting a lot of the circus of exorcism we see today. Next week we're going to come back and really fill in what the Bible actually says about Christians and spiritual warfare because demons are still real, possession is still real. What do we do about it? Next week we'll find out what the Bible actually prescribes for us. Plenty more to say. Let me just say, though, again, for now, let your hope be in the gospel. Now, even if a person is truly rid of a demon, if they remain empty of Christ and devoid of the Spirit, like Jesus said, the last state will become worse than the first. But the gospel is the real hope for all people. Exorcists today, they diminish the gospel. They lead Christians to believe that you can be possessed you can be robbed of your hope. But that just communicates the insufficiency of the gospel of Christ. Apparently the gospel is not enough to deliver you from evil. Apparently you need more. You need them. You need an exorcist with a little fee involved. But it's a lie. Like Colossians 1 says, if you have Christ in you, the hope of glory, you've already been delivered. You already have victory. Do you still need protection from temptation? Yes. Do you still need to Stand firm against the schemes of the devil. Of course. But greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. And if you truly know Christ, you've already been transferred from the domain of darkness to the kingdom of light. Let me finish. Turn to Colossians 2. We'll just finish with this. I want to look at one last passage. This is our our Easter tie-in. I want to reiterate this. Colossians chapter 2. Even after seeing all this, demons still being real, still being deceptive. Hopefully it only emphasizes more that our real hope is going to be in the gospel. That's God's real power for salvation, the gospel. Our hope is in the Lord, a resurrected Lord, who gained victory over Satan and demons. Colossians chapter 1 builds up the glory of Christ, his person and his work, and it culminates in verse 27 which is Christ in you, the hope of glory, that we're united to Christ. So significant. When you are saved and united to Christ, that comes with some other things, like verse 12 of Colossians chapter 2. He goes on to say that we were buried with him in baptism, in which you also were raised up with him through faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead. 
And notice what we get by virtue of our union with Christ. With Him, we die. You are baptized, you go under that water, you, you die. You are dying to your old self. You are dying to sin. But you also live. You rise to new life just like Christ rose to new life. Through faith, we are raised. This is what we're celebrating today. This is what Easter is all about. Remembering and celebrating the resurrection. What He did and how it affects us that we died too. And we rise as well to new life, new birth in Him. And I encourage you to, to meditate on this today. And if you forget what He did, look at verse 13. A couple of my favorite verses in all of Scripture. Verse 13. It says, When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, He made you alive together with Him, having forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us, and He's taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. There's your gospel. There's your good news. I mean, who's our opponent here? We have a, a deadly opponent that seeks to kill us. And who is it? It's our own sin. Our own sin is our opponent. Our own sin and rebellion against God was going to kill us, eternally separate us from God. Our flesh had a stranglehold on us. We were enslaved to a mountain of debt, of sin. And only judgment awaited us, but because of God's love and mercy, God sent Christ to die on the cross, to pay for your sins, to take that debt and wipe it out. Just think of all of your sins just wiped clean. All of them for good. And when he rose, he rose to victory, and that's, that's our victory now if you have faith in him. That's, that's your triumph over sin, your enemy. And that's the good news, that because of resurrection, you, by faith in him, triumph over sin. But there's one more triumph to mention in verse 15. And after this, when he had disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. This phrase, rulers and authorities, used often of demons and Satan. Rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. But Jesus triumphed over them when he rose. And so do we. That is our triumph as well over our other enemy. And we were victorious. The language in this verse presents Jesus as, as like a Roman general coming home after a victory, a, a military campaign. He's marching through the streets of Rome and he's dragging behind him his vanquished enemy. And that's Jesus with Satan and demons. They've been defeated. The cross, which everyone thought signaled Christ's defeat, turned into the symbol of his victory when he rose from the dead. You realize that? In the days before the resurrection, they thought the cross was, was a matter of shame and defeat. It was a symbol of you lost. It was Satan's victory symbol, the cross. But three days later when he rose through that transformation, the cross became Satan's defeat. And it became our greatest symbol of victory. Because of resurrection, it's a victory. Satan thought he had won, but resurrection was his defeat. And for Christ, his shame turned into glory. 
at resurrection. And now that, that's our glory. Not because of us, but because of Him and our un, unity with Him. He is our hope of glory, Christ in you. If you're here, you don't know Christ, you haven't committed your life to Him, do it today. He is your only hope of forgiveness, reconciliation, victory over sin, death, and Satan and demons. And for the rest, just let this day, let every day be characterized by a real hope and a joy, a meaningful joy, a peace, and a confidence in Christ. There is, in this life, a very serious spiritual warfare to wage. We're going to learn about that. But it really pales in comparison to the victory we already have. The war is over. We won through him. Let's celebrate that this Easter. Let's pray. Lord in heaven, we thank you for this day, the day we remember, especially the resurrection of our Lord when he, when he won the war. The victory is, is, is complete. The seed has, has stomped the serpent on the head, and, and it's over. Still here and now, little skirmishes rage on, and we fight the enemy, but greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world, and they cannot overcome us. Let that be our, our confidence. Or this world of, of rulers and authorities in the heavenly places, it's unseen to us, yet very real, posing a, a threat to us. Encourage us in Christ. Help us to cling to the gospel, the word of truth, by which we will overcome the snares of the devil. And may we just, more than anything this morning, keep going back and back and back to thoughts on the cross, the shame, but then the resurrection and the glory that was produced and accomplished for us. We thank you for this, Lord. We're here for you. We worship you because of resurrection. And we long for the day when we too will be raised to new life forever with you. In your name we pray. Amen.